0: Good, good, good. Hope everyone can hear me. Can you guys here in the room hear me okay? Can't see you. Signal. Okay, we're good? All right, fantastic. Um, Good. Okay, so um, this morning we are continuing a study series that we began uh, last week, a study series on the Lord's Prayer, and I hope you have access to that first installment either by Podcast, or uh, maybe the live stream is still available on Facebook. I'm not exactly sure how that works, but uh, so I hope you have that. We we started out with kind of, I think, some startling observations about the Lord's Prayer, um, and I think when you, uh, especially when you consider, I mean, you know, this is this is a um, a common act of common worship and common prayer for Christians uh, throughout the centuries, um, all over the world. Um, and yet, just to be, I think, uh, candid about it, uh, there's nothing distinctly Christian about the Lord's Prayer. That is, it never mentions Christ. It never mentions Jesus. It never mentions, um, you know, many of the our cherished, cherished um, doctrines as Christians. None of those are, are there. It's, it's quite a, a startling prayer in that sense. And so, if the Lord's Prayer is is not that kind of thing, if it's not a Christian confession exclusive to Christians, then that begs the question, what is it? And so uh, that's really what this study series is all about. And last week we began with, with really kind of a quick overview of the Lord's Prayer from start to finish. And today we begin a slowdown and a look at the Lord's Prayer, um, well, let's just say, Phrase by phrase or big idea by big idea, I think, might be a better way to say it. So so here we go, right off the bat, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. We're using Matthew's uh, version. Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus says, and this is in the middle of, drawn from the Sermon on the Mount, by the way. That's the context. Uh, Jesus says, pray then in this way, our Father in heaven. Now, this prayer is, of course, given to us in poetic style. We talked about that some last week. And right off the bat, we are faced with an element that is actually quite common to poetry. Not just poetry, but, but particularly uh, common to poetry of, of all types, all types of poetry. Uh, and that element is metaphor. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to, we're looking at what is meant by the beginning of this prayer when we say our Father, or to be more precise, in Matthew's original language, uh, it's addressed to the Father of us. Um, so, so we're going to deal with this. And so we're going we're gonna to talk, kind of start from big picture and talk about metaphor in general and then move in closer to... Um, the use of metaphor in Scripture, particularly the use of metaphor with regard to God, and then the specific uh, use of Father with reference to God. Okay, so let's start with metaphor in general. Uh, I think, simply put, when we, when we say, well, what do we mean? What is, what is a metaphor? What does it mean to communicate with metaphor? You can say it this way. To use a metaphor is to describe one thing using the terms of another, right? So in baseball, Say a hitter uh, in baseball uh, has a streak where, uh, where he gets on base, you know, several times in a row. And we might be in a conversation about that particular hitter during that particular time. And we might say, man, he is on fire. Right? Well, we wouldn't you know, jump up and call the fire department or grab a fire extinguisher. We know that we're not speaking literally there. We're speaking metaphorically. and We mean in some sense the idea of fire speaks to the, at least the current condition of that uh, hitter. Right? Or, or if a friend, you're in conversation with a friend and your friend tells you they're feeling a little bit blue. Uh, you know, you don't start looking at them closely, inspecting their skin tone for hues of blue. You know, that's not what they mean. They mean they're feeling, they're feeling sad, right? Uh, this week, I attended my first ever uh, wedding by Zoom, right? It's a video, video Zoom um, for uh, a wedding. Many of you may remember Jordan Wong, who was a part of our church for a long time, played drums with our with our band. He got married. Uh, this week and uh, got married by Zoom and so I and many other friends around the country, actually around the world, um, joined us for that Zoom wedding and it was actually quite lovely. I mean, something I'd never experienced before, but it came off pretty well actually. Um, and so, in the context of that video Zoom call wedding, um, you know, many of us clearly were were let's just we were wishing Jordan and Julia. God's very best in their journey together, right? Um, now, when we say that kind of thing, we don't mean to say that we think Jordan and Julia are going to travel for the rest of their lives living out of a suitcase going from place to place, right? That's not what we mean. Uh, what we mean by that when we speak like that, we, we mean that in a, in a certain way, life is a kind of a journey. And so we get the idea. Metaphor both is and is not, right? Life is and is not a journey. There's a sense in which life is like a journey, but at the same time, life is not a journey. In fact, we actually spend quite a lot of time in the same geographic place in life, right? Um, so, or we could say, you know, a sad mood is and is not blue. <laughs> There's a sense in which a sad mood is blue, and a sense in which it's not actually the, the color blue and or we could say uh, an athlete who's having a great deal of success during a certain time span that athlete both is and is not on fire that's the nature of metaphor that's how it works now you know it, it we we um we habitually i think we we use metaphor and speak in metaphor more frequently than we realize actually and you could say we we can't escape metaphor. There are the ones that we recognize, right? Like maybe the athlete being on fire, we recognize that metaphor. But it's also true that some metaphors are so deeply ingrained in our communication style, just the way we talk, some are so deeply ingrained that we may not even recognize them as metaphors anymore, because they they just become the standard uh, way that we communicate about a certain, uh, a certain concept or reality. In, in these metaphors, we no longer think of them as metaphors. We just think of them as reality. There's one poet who says in one line, he says, um, uh, let me, I've forgotten what exactly it is. let me shake loose your mortist metaphors. Um, and so sometimes, actually, it can be helpful for us to rattle and shake our mortist metaphors and kind of slow down and take a look at them. But before we move the next step closer in toward this use in the Lord's Prayer, um, let's ask a few questions, though. Why? Why might we use... Um, metaphor. And I want to give you just a a couple things to think about in that category. Um, One is that, and you recognize this when you think about it, but the use of metaphor actually engages the mind of the listener, Whether, whether whether it's auditory or written metaphor. The use of metaphor actually invites the listener to engage in the process of communication, right? Like so 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 when when someone communicates using metaphor, all of the all of the details are not filled in by the communicator for what's being discussed. You're actually throwing out a metaphor and asking the listener or the hearer or the reader to to engage with their mind and their imagination in in what it is that's actually being conveyed. And so really in a way You can say it this way, that when we communicate using metaphor, the communication is actually a partnership, that there there really is no communication without the engagement of the listener when metaphor is at play. And so that can be a very good reason for using metaphor. It's a way of engaging the hearer or the reader in the process of creating the meaning of what's being communicated. A, A second reason for using metaphor, and we're going to talk about this. This is really pertinent to the use of metaphor in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, sometimes we use metaphor because a literal description is actually impossible. Uh, and this is certainly true uh, when it comes to communication about God. There are some things, many things, ultimately the thing, we, it's impossible for us to communicate literally the nature of God. And therefore metaphor becomes essential in this context. Um, Another thing I want to say about metaphor is that um, the use of metaphor, it, 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 it draws the imagination toward a certain aspect of what's being described, kind of like a spotlight. Like the use of metaphor is kind of like using a spotlight to highlight or draw the imagination toward uh, a certain aspect of what's being described, right? Like, like if I say, if I say, uh, Ain't no sunshine when she's gone, for example. Um, I'm attempting to draw your attention toward a certain aspect of my experience when she's gone. Now, the truth is there are many aspects of my experience when she's gone, but what I'm trying to draw your attention toward is the fact that when she's gone, I'm sad or I'm, well, blue. (laughs) Speaking of speaking of metaphor, right? So what I'm doing in the use of that metaphor is I'm drawing your attention toward a certain aspect of what is actually a bigger, bigger thing, which is my, the totality of my experience when she's gone. So metaphor in that sense serves as a spotlight. It focuses the imagination on a particular aspect of what's being described. See what I mean? All this is going to become relevant, um, as we take these next steps toward the Lord's prayer. Uh, and the last thing is this, um, metaphor, Uh, I guess to borrow another phrase, metaphor conveys a thousand words in a single word or a single phrase. Um, A a metaphor is like a blast of meaning that's conveyed oftentimes with only one word and certainly many times with one one phrase. And so this is not just about efficiency of communication. That's not exactly what, what I'm saying um but it is a way of saying that to communicate with metaphor is to distill and condense or to concentrate meaning in a disproportionate way like like one word actually conveys a thousand ideas or or one phrase one metaphorical phrase communicates a big giant glob of thought and 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 meaning right so uh so for example imagine uh imagine if if instead of using a metaphor, if your friend were stuck with a literal factual um, description of the sunset you were watching together, right? For example, imagine if your friend said, if your friend, you know, as you're watching the sunset together and your friend says, no, man, this is, this is not even really a sunset. Actually, what's happening is the earth is rotating to the point where we can finally no longer see the sun. And no, the sky is actually not being painted in beautiful colors. That's not actually what's going on. See, the atmosphere is actually peppered with little molecules of dust and droplets of water. And as the sun hits that at different angles, it's actually causing the light to refract in different ways. And those different light refractions are causing the light to look and appear to be in different colors, right? If if your friend started to say that, you would go, stop, would you please, would you please stop it? It's just no fun. It's much more fun to look at that sunset and say, wow, look at that. The sky has suddenly become a painter's canvas. And everybody goes, wow. So just a few words or just a single phrase, there's much more blast and concentrated meaning. So these are some of the reasons why we would use metaphor. Now, let's take the next step closer when it comes to, and I've already indicated this, but when it comes to the use of metaphor in in the context of God talk, well, it it's just, it's, it's necessary. We, 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 We must use metaphor. When we're talking about God, we have no other way of speaking about God besides imagery and metaphor. There's one theologian, Paul Tillich, and he said that, he said, there's only one thing we can say about God without using metaphor, and that is that God is. (laughs) Um, And so it's essential. The use of metaphor is inescapable um, when we're talking about the things of God. So, what about this particular instance? Our Father in heaven. Father in describing God. Can we just pause here before we go any further and acknowledge, um, first of all, I think, I think we, we, I would say, It's striking that Jesus would choose father as his favorite go-to metaphor for God. And ultimately, it is extraordinarily good news that Jesus used the metaphor of father as his favorite go-to, most common way of describing God. I mean, just think about this, just for comparison's sake. Think about all the choices that Jesus had to work from uh, from the Jewish scriptures themselves, right? There's all kinds of images within the scriptures that are used to um, describe God. We have, we have the, um, what we might call the monarchy family of images. That is, that is the scriptures speak of God as a king, uh, that, kind of, that kind of family of metaphor. The scriptures also speak of God um, as a warrior uh, on occasion, God as a judge is there. And then uh, there are the, what what are called the bucolic metaphors for God. That is the outdoorsy farming agrarian metaphors. God as a shepherd, God as a farmer. Uh, so so this, there's like this smorgasbord of images that are available to Jesus and he chooses father. I just love that. There's some risks as well. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But so those are the Biblical metaphors are kind of like a, well, that's probably not a a complete list, but those are some of the metaphor families that are available to Jesus from the scriptures. But then what about through later, you know, church history? And this is more relates to us, like um, um, St. Anselm around the turn of the millennium. He taught many of us to think of God in terms of a feudal Lord. That was the image that he worked from when he taught his... Uh, way of thinking about the cross in terms of divine satisfaction. Anselm pictured God as a feudal lord who had been offended by human sin and who demands satisfaction like any feudal lord would. And that's Anselm's time, Anselm's culture. So that's the image that he borrowed from, and he taught many. His his uh, theology became quite popular. So he taught many people, even those who don't know his name, to think of God like some sort of feudal lord who demands satisfaction for having been offended. So that's a metaphor available to many of, of us. Um, and, then, and then there's the idea of, of God as, a, as a, like a law court style judge, like a judge in a black robe and with a gavel. And this would be kind of John Calvin's image um, of, of God. This would be totally different than the word judge as it's used in the scripture. This would be a much more modern uh, concept of God as a judge. And and again, many modern Christians have learned to think of God as a judge because John Calvin's theology became very important. So there's all kinds of metaphors and all kinds of images um, for God. And and with with most of this at Jesus' disposal, he chooses Father as his favorite, go-to, leading way of speaking about God. And this is huge. Again, astounding, shocking. I think um, uh, ultimately this is incredibly good news. Now, let me just say um, with, well, almost any human metaphor used to describe God, there's also risky business here um, because we humans are frail and inconsistent. That is um, perhaps most of all true, uh, I'll just say, as a father, Certainly, most of all, certainly true, uh, not least in the context of speaking about a father. We, we human fathers certainly can be frail and inconsistent. And so there is some, depending on who you are in your life experience, there is some risk. I'll just acknowledge in a very human to human kind of way, uh, there can be some risk. And certainly I've known people for whom to image God as a father could, was difficult for them uh, because of their own life experience. And so that begs, I think, the question for us, what might have been in Jesus' imagination in describing God as Father? What kinds of ideas were available to Jesus and his original audience, right? His, Jesus and his original audience would have, would have shared a common... Uh, a common memory bank, a common... um, I'm getting some feedback here if we could turn this microphone down. Uh, Jesus and his original audience certainly shared um, a common library of images for what these words uh, might mean, certainly the word Father. And that common memory bank, I think, uh, is their shared scriptures. So, what is intended specifically... When it comes to the ancient scriptures, what does it mean to think of or to designate God as Father? That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And I want to begin by presenting to you, and I want to to go gentle here, um, but I do want to offer this to you for your consideration. And I want to suggest in the end, Um, in the kind of ultimate big picture kind of way, I want to suggest that, granted, the word father uh, does have a gender component. Father is obviously a male term. But I want to suggest when you put it all together, that is in the Jewish consciousness, um, gender is not what's being pointed to in describing God as father. And I begin by simply pointing out that many males, both then and now, are not fathers. Um, but secondly, in the scriptures, there are numerous times when father and mother are used in poetic parallel together. Which is to say that father and mother are seen as a collected, collected unit um, together as Not just parents, but as householders. Check this out. A couple of examples. Proverbs 23. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who begets a wise son uh, will be glad in him. Let your father and mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. So notice in this proverb, um, which is a collection of standard Jewish wisdom, Notice how in its poetic form, father and mother are used in parallel, that is, in classic poetic parallelism. Um, uh, parallelism is always saying the same thing in some kind of slightly different, different way, but still saying the same thing. So here's one example in Proverbs where father and mother are seen together collectively almost as a unit. And then, a little, just to press this a little bit further, and then we'll move on, But in Proverbs 31 in particular, there are many instances, and I have, I think, three of them here, where specifically the mother is identified as the householder, right? Proverbs 31, she rises while it's still night and provides food for her household and tasks for her servant girls verse 21 she's not afraid for her household when it snows for all her household are clothed in crimson she looks well to the ways of her household and doesn't eat the bread of idleness can we just stop and acknowledge i mean clearly uh, ancient jewish culture was a male-dominated culture and yet we have these threads in their own scriptures where explicitly in this instance, the mother is seen as a householder, not just a father. So, um, so there are many in scripture and in Jewish culture and in culture today who are householders who are not male. I myself um, was, grew up in a uh, single parent family for a time and my mother was the householder in my household. So, so what I want to say this morning, and here's kind of the way I'm working with this, um, is that in summary, what's meant when we refer to God as Father, in essence, what we mean is we're seeing God as the householder. In the biblical tradition, Father means householder. So, to call God Father is to call God the householder of the world. Of the world as the household. Now, having said that, what are the pieces? What are the elements? What are the, what are the connecting points uh, from Scripture with what? Okay, so, okay, granted, let's say that. Let's, let's say that Father indicates householder. So what then is the content even within that? What content is God as householder? What content do we fill that with? And I want to give you, uh, I think, three um, I would say on your outline, but I don't think you have you have the outline. But on in my outline, then I'll say. So the first is this: householder as creator, and we're going to do lots of scripture passages this morning. Hope that you can make uh, note of these. But here's just here's just a rundown. Deuteronomy thirty-two verse six: uh, Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and senseless people? Is not He your father? who created you, who made you, and established you. Isaiah 64, verse 8. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And so here's this idea that that the the idea of God as Father, in this specific instance, is being filled with the content of Creator. Creator. Father as creator. And, of course, uh, Genesis 2, in the creation narrative, God is really and truly depicted as a potter, as a, for, you know, f- forming mankind from, from the mud, just like a, a potter. Verse, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became A living being. Another, Malachi 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Right? So, these are just some examples where the the idea of God as Father is filled with the content of God as creator. Now, I'll just pause and say this. When we think of God as creator, it's important to remember, right... That God is the creator of all. He's the creator of all people. He's the creator of all things. And so to realize that God is the creator. Is to realize that God is the creator of all. All things and all people. Now, if you just pause. And allow that realization to go to work. It'll go to work. In your soul, right? What does that mean? Well, beginning personally, God is the creator of me. Yes, he is. That means God is the creator of us. Yes, he is. Us of God is the creator of me. He's also he's the creator of my people. He's the creator of my tribe. He's the creator of my group. Yes, it's all true. And and he's the creator of them of those people, of their tribe, of their group. He is the creator of all. And so to call God father is to acknowledge God as the householder creator of all. He is the universal creator. All of this is jammed in to these first three syllables of the Lord's prayer, our father everybody see that secondly in scripture there is a there is a close connection between god as father and god as protector or savior here are some examples psalm 89 verse 26 he shall cry to me you are my father my god and the rock of my salvation so here's father as protector or savior Isaiah 63, verse 16. For you are our Father. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer redeemer from old is your name. God as Savior, Protector. In that case, Redeemer indicates that liberation kind of saving. Um, Exodus 22, here's another. Uh, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, this is the context of the Exodus story, Moses, let my people go, all that. Uh, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, right? So let them go so that, so that, or so let Israel go so that he may worship me. This is the nation of Israel being referred to as God's own son. This is, by the way, the first mention in scripture of God as father. Um, it's implicit here. The word father is not used, but Israel is my son. Uh, another, Isaiah uh, chapter nine, verse six. Despite this, I think this line will be familiar to to many of you when you hear it, but I just want to say that this may be one of the strangest of all mentions of of God as, as Father. This comes from Isaiah in the context of what we Christians recognize as a prophecy concerning Jesus. And in this prophecy, he is described as you'll see this, as both son and father, which is really odd. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, how is it, or, or why would we refer to the coming one, in the case of Isaiah, um, as both a son and a father? Well, again, I think the answer to that question is in what we're talking about right now. The idea of God as father points to God as savior or protector, right? Um, This son that Isaiah is describing has authority. He is a prince. He is a father. In other words, Isaiah is, what Isaiah is seeing is that with his authority, he will, like a prince, lead us from a place of, however you want to say it, chaos, bondage, etc., into a place of peace. He is a savior protector, and therefore, the image of father applies to this son, so when we speak of God as Father, there is this intimate connection in Scripture, in the biblical imagination, let's say, this intimate connection between uh, Father and Protector, Father and Savior. It is, it is as if to, uh, to say the one, Father, is to say the other, Savior, Protector. And so again, all that in these first three syllables in English of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Next. Householder as provider. Here's some examples. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Psalm 68 verse 5 um, says this, Father of orphans and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. Now, let me just say, The word used here explicitly is protector, but in this case, it means protection. The means of protection is by providing for orphans and widows. That's how protection usually works. When you're protecting those who are vulnerable because of poverty, protecting in that case takes the form of providing. So it is their poverty, widows and orphans that is, that makes them vulnerable Uh, to those who are well positioned in society. And so the form that protection takes is providing. And so throughout the scriptures, and this is just one example, but throughout the scriptures, there are these three groups of people that are mentioned over and over and over again um, as being preferred, let's say, for special care and concern. And these three, three groups that, came up, that come up over and over again are the poor and the needy, the widows and orphans, and the aliens and strangers, or that is to say foreigners. So over and over again in the Jewish scriptures, these three groups are, are, are called out for special care and concern. The poor and the needy. Why? Why? because the poor and the needy are vulnerable in a rich society. It is their poverty that causes them to be an easy target for being overlooked or even exploited in a rich society. Uh, Widows and orphans, why are they called out for special mention? Because in a patriarchal male-dominated society, widows and orphans are easily overlooked, neglected. And so, again, By the scriptures, they're called out again and again and again for special care. Um, And then the third group would, you know, aliens, foreigners, um, immigrants, we might say. Again, those are called out for special care and attention and concern. Why? Because in a tribal society, a society that, that orbits around tribe, you know, people like me, my group, my people it's very easy to overlook and perhaps even trample on those who are in and among us who are aliens, foreigners, immigrants to our, to our place. And so throughout Scripture, these three groups are called out for special concern. Why? Because God is a Father. He is the Father of all. Here's uh, another example, Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 17. You shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether other Israelites or aliens who reside in your land in one of your towns. You shall not deprive a resident alien or an orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment in pledge. Isaiah 10 verse 1. Ah, you who make iniquitous decrees, who write oppressive statutes to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people to their right, that widows may be your spoil and that you may make orphans your prey. <laughs> and these are just some examples. But the question is, what is it that the, the conscience of the biblical authors um, is warning against? What, what is it in, in essence? And, and I just want to say. Plain and simple, it is the inequality, at least the potential for inequality among those who are well-positioned in the society and those who are vulnerable to being overlooked or, or exploited. And why would this be a big deal in the consciousness of the biblical authors? Well, it's because if your fundamental image of God is God as householder of the world house, then the conscience is instantly sensitized to the fair and equitable treatment of all members of the household, which is humanity in this case, right? Like like in what kind of household would certain members of the household exploit other members of the household for their own gain? In what kind of household would that happen? It would be... It would be a a dysfunctional, to say the least, toxic household. Um, In what kind of household would certain members have less than they need while other members of the household have more than they need? In what kind of household would that be? I mean, just think about it in your own human experience. In your own household? Or imagine imagine that you walk into the household of someone else. Let's do that. Let's talk about all those other people, right? Imagine if you walked into somebody else's household and you saw that within that householder's household, whether that householder be male or female or, or a partnership of male and female, and as you're looking at their household, you see that some of the members of their household have far less than they need, while other members of the household have far more than they need what would your reaction be toward that householder or toward those householders what kind of householder would be in charge of a household like that well for most of us it would be it would, it would be unacceptable right we would say man we need some therapy here we need some coaching we need some some wake up call right so the idea being that As we soak in the image of God as the Father who is the householder of the world house, that is the protector of all, the provider for all, especially the poor, the weak, and the needy. And again, just drawing from our own human experience, right? In a healthy human household led by healthy householders, it is especially the weakest members of the household who are focused upon for special care, right? And the other members of the household uh, are, 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 are completely on board for that. The, the member of the household who is sick, the member of the household who is weaker, the member of the household who is who is uh, disadvantaged in some way, right? It is the expectation of the householder that all the other members of the household are going to rally around that household member in order for special care and support. This is the idea that appears again and again in Scripture, particularly with the highlighting of these three groups, the poor and the needy, the widow and the orphan, the stranger, and the alien. And as we focus in and as we soak in the image of God as Father, who is the provider, protector, especially for the poor, the weak, and the needy, I'm just saying that image will go to work deep within our souls. Because remember, we become like what we worship. And as we worship God as the householder who seeks the equal provision of all in his household, that focus, that worship, that soaking will have a healing, transformational work within our hearts and minds. Speaking of become like, becoming like what we worship, uh, the final element that I want to highlight about speaking of God as Father um, is to just talk for a bit about householder as model. That is, householder as the one that, uh, whom the members of the household ultimately imitate. Um, and that's true both in ancient households and in modern Households, Sons and daughters learn to become future householders through apprenticeship, let's say, to their parents. In both implicit ways and in explicit ways, sons and daughters learn to imitate the householders of their household. Uh, again, this is true in ancient times all the way to modern times. But I just want to point out in our last few minutes together that Jesus adds a whole new level of weight to this idea of God as our model householder right in the Sermon on the Mount in the verses around where we draw the Lord's Prayer from in Matthew. Listen to this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Be perfect, therefore, <laughs> as your heavenly Father is perfect. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But to begin, uh, look at this. And let's ask the question, right? So, so Jesus... He's giving, he's teaching, well, let's just say, kind of clinically speaking, Jesus here is giving us an ethical image. Love your enemies. Uh, elsewhere, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So let's just kind of take those two teachings from, from Jesus. Love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemies, right? But notice what Jesus is doing um, Notice where, where it is that Jesus is anchoring this ethic for his followers. Uh, and I'll just say, notice that Jesus is not simply giving us like a new moral hoop to jump through. He's not simply giving us a higher moral bar to try to clear it if you can. That's not what he's doing. He's not doing that at all. Notice what Jesus is doing. He is anchoring... These teachings in the very character of God, right? Notice what he says. Uh, uh, and I'll just kind of bring this in. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then ex- directly from this context, uh, love your enemies. Why? Because that's what God is like. <laughs> like. Like father, like daughter, Jesus is saying. Like father, like son. This is what God is like. He, is, he loves his enemies, he causes the the rain to fall on both the, the righteous and the unrighteous. And by the way, rain is a good thing in an agricultural society. Sometimes like when I was growing up, I didn't really understand that. Um, I thought rain is a bad thing, right? Because when it rainy day, meant it was a bad thing. I couldn't go outside and play. But in an agricultural society, rain is like, ah, oh, yes, we're going to eat. We're going to have crops, right? So, he called, so Jesus is saying that God is good to the righteous and the unrighteous. This is what God Is like now, go and do likewise, like father, like daughter. That's what Jesus is saying. You are the children of God, so go and do likewise. Be a chip off the old block, right? Make it so that the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. I mean, those are some of the ways that we might say the same kind of thing. That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying that God is our father and he is the model, he is our householder whom we model uh, in how we conduct ourselves in this world. It is an extraordinary, extraordinary thing that Jesus is doing. Now, just a couple of comments here. Um, This riff ends with be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, this closer um, might throw us off a little bit, right? Because for many of us... um, We understand that perfectionism will drive you nuts, right? In fact, I would say perfectionism really is an unhealthy and counterproductive mental attitude. Uh, But that's not what Jesus is saying here, not at all. The original word here in Matthew's Greek is telos. Um, When Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, the word there is, is telos. And it doesn't mean perfectionism. Like we think of perfectionism. It doesn't mean perfectionism like the kind of perfectionism that'll drive you nuts. It um, doesn't mean that really um, at all. What is meant by the Greek word telos is mature, complete, or full. We have this stem word in English, um, and I always, there's probably other examples, but I always think of, of the word telescope. When when we we speak of a telescope, we're actually using this, this Greek stem word, telos, and think about it that way. When we use a telescope, we're using this telescope to look at the aim or the focus or the target, right? If I take a telescope and focus it on the moon, then the telescope is helping me see the target or the end in mind or the aim of my focus, my attention, see, in that sense. And so... The Greek, this is what the Greek telos means. So when Jesus says, um, uh, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, in summary, what he's saying is, be who you were created to be. That is, like God. And here we're thinking Genesis 1. Let us make humankind in our image and in our likeness. And that's what Jesus is saying. Be who you are created to be. That is, like God. God. And so in this case, as always, Father means model, example, template for us to imitate. Father means householder who is our model. And so, everybody, once again, this is extraordinary to take in. Jesus' favorite way of talking about God is to describe God as a father. That is creator, universal creator of all, provider, protector, especially of the weakest and most vulnerable, and as our model to imitate. God is the householder of the world house. And his desire for his world house is that it would be run like the household of a good, kind, loving human householder. The very best that we can imagine and still infinitely kinder and better than what we can imagine on a human scale. Where everyone in the world house is protected. Where everyone in the world house is provided for. And when we pray this prayer, it is to this good and kind, divine householder that we are directing our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, and our worship. Our Father in heaven. That's how the prayer starts. And we say in heaven, actually, it's our Father in the heavens, literally, plural, uh, Remember, heaven is not an address. It's it's a quality of existence. Our Father in the heavens. Our Father in the place of the divine. The place of the telos. That's who we're crying out to. Our Father in heaven. So this morning, I want to invite you to uh, pray this prayer with me. You are where you are and you are with those who, who you are with. Um, you may even be watching this live stream alone. Um, but when we pray this prayer, we're never praying it alone. We're always praying it with the global community of Christ followers who've inherited this prayer from the very teaching of Jesus. It is personal it is, an, it is a, very, a, a, a very individual act to pray this prayer. And yet, we never pray it as individuals. It's always prayed as a community, community of believers. And again, as I've said a number of times today, it's prayed as a member of God's world house. So let's pray it together. I want to invite you to pray it with me wherever you are. Here we go. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God bless you, River Valley Church and other friends who've joined us today. We miss you. We love you. We look forward to when we're together again in physical proximity. Have a great afternoon. Have a great week. Bless you.